Like if we want to go back at least to Plato in our recorded history, there has been a struggle, quite apart from gods and titans, there's been a struggle in the human community of philosophy against religion. Plato, he's diabolical in the literal sense of the word diabolos. When he met Socrates, he burned his plays in an offering to Prometheus. Prometheus, the first tragic wow. figure in Greek mm -hmm. drama in The Birth of Tragedy. Nietzsche says that Prometheus was the first mask of Dionysus. There are people on another level, orchestrators on another level. The Hindus call them the Devas. Yeah. The Greeks call them the Olympians. They would like to take control back. Nietzsche's central message, God is dead, and we have killed him. Right. Nietzsche says a conflict is coming, which is unlike any war humanity has ever faced in history. To decide the nature and future of man. Bhagavad Gita was quoted by Oppenheimer. That war has to happen for the progress of yes. reality. Yes. There's going to be an Uncle Bishma Yes. He's gonna have to die by the bow Arjun. That movie was released, and two weeks later, they recalled every reel from the cinemas and replaced it with a new reel, which had the soundtrack changed over the orgy scenes. It's the Bhagavad Gita Bhagavad scene. It's the Bhagavad, and the meaning of Eyes Wide Shut is in that scene with those lyrics, and they destroyed it. And it's Kubrick talking about these people who think they're running the world and the battle that's coming and what's going to happen to these people. To protect the righteous, to destroy the wicked, I come from age to age. Hey everybody, welcome to the very first Break the Rules live from New York City. I'm your host Lev Polyakov. And we have today with us Dr. Jason Riza Giorgiani, Gnostic informant, and we are here to talk about philosophy versus religion, the meaning of existence, the meaning of creation, why exactly we're here, why we are the way we are, why we think the way we are. And without further ado, I'm going to bring this over to Dr. Giorgiani himself. It's a pleasure to be with you, Lev, especially in this new studio. Um, and I think that this is a momentous conversation to have, uh, you know, as the first of our conversations in this new space for BTR. This question of the conflict between philosophy and religion has really been at the heart of my work from the beginning. Even before I published Prometheus and Atlas, I was reading Leo Strauss, who is one of the great contemporary, well, I would say modern interpreters of Plato, mm. right? Um, he is a platonic political theorist, mostly. He didn't really consider himself a philosopher. But he wrote a great deal about Plato, particularly uh, from the perspective of political philosophy. And there's this one essay of Strauss called um, uh, Reason versus Revelation, or Reason and Revelation. And it's about the problem that religious faith poses for philosophy uh, from, a from a political perspective, right? Because any religion that makes the claim that it ought to be accepted on faith, whether it's explicitly based on a revelation or not, like for example, the Abrahamic religions, 
are all based on revealed scripture of one kind or another, or miraculous events that are later codified in scripture. But even Hinduism is a religion based to some extent on faith, on a demand uh, of faith by gods or Brahmin who are serving those gods and so on and so forth. So the basis for such religious belief is intrinsically and admittedly irrational, mm. right? And so if you are, as a philosopher, attempting to justify a certain view of the nature of the cosmos and a certain proposal for how society ought to be organized based on reason... You're at odds. You're at odds. And what are you going to do with these characters who admit to you that they have irrationally embraced a certain doctrine on faith alone. It's a problem that uh, Strauss poses. And Strauss, because he's a political thinker, only explores one, I think, more superficial aspect of this problem. There's an even deeper dimension to this dilemma that I think uh, Georges Bataille gets at in his book Erotism, his book on the nature of eroticism where Bataille at one point in that text claims that philosophy is incapable of grasping the essence of the sacred. <laughs> uh, because, see, eroticism is, as Bataille sees it, a relatively unmediated relationship to the sacred in a kind of Dionysian ecstatic state. And Bataille claims that philosophy is not capable of engaging with the sacred in the same way, uh, let alone grasping it or encompassing it, comprehending it in a literal sense of getting a, wrapping one's mind around it, right? And I, I disagree with Bataille. I mean, this question is at the heart of the, the latest book that I've written, Erosophia. I explore it particularly in the final chapter of Erosophia, which is titled Sex, Crime, and the Spectral. But although I disagree with Bataille, I think he's getting at something. Namely that if philosophy is construed as a solely rational enterprise, then indeed philosophy cannot get at the essence of the sacred. Which means that philosophy is confronted by a serious adversary in the form of religion. Mm. Right? And so Strauss sees one aspect of this problem. Strauss is mostly concerned with the way in which a state, a political entity, can deal with religious believers if the state has its constitution grounded on secular rational arguments, right? So, for example, the Constitution of the United States, which Strauss was principally concerned with, is supposedly based on rational Enlightenment philosophy. Yet, we have all these religious believers in our country, whether evangelical or Catholic or whatever, who admittedly hold in the highest regard something which they see no rational need to justify and which they've accepted, quote-unquote, on faith. At the same time, though, the Founding Fathers were very big admirers of the uh, Greek and Roman gods, and uh, they uh, styled their architecture and their whole aesthetic on those ideas. So that, to me, at least seems to be a middle ground between the overly zealous masses and people who are completely atheistic, who reject religion altogether. But it is curious to me what exactly the Founding Fathers thought of these gods. Did they think of them as actual beings that should be venerated, or were they more like the archetypes that they wanted to emulate? Yeah. 
So this brings us to Plato, because I think the founders took very much the same view of the gods that Plato did. I mean, the, the Greek gods are all over the texts of Plato, and yet clearly Plato is not advocating faith in the Olympian pantheon. In fact, right. what Plato is doing is attempting to shatter the naive, customary, Homeric, Homeric yeah. conventions of his society. Um, and, I, you know, the founders who you were referencing, whether it's Jefferson, you know, with his tremendous library, or Ben Franklin, uh, George Washington, the 33rd degree Mason, were all very much platonic in their understanding of the Greek pantheon, right, and its, and its significance. Plato's Republic really presents us with the first robust formulation of this problem, where in Republic, I mean, we Neil and I have discussed this at length in other uh, conversations, which I think should all be linked in the show notes. Absolutely. Right? We've had a whole history of conversations on ancient religion and Plato in particular. And Plato in Republic basically lays out the problem in this way, that the customary religion of the Greeks based on Homer and Hesiod, or rather, I should say, preserved and conveyed by Homer and Hesiod, is extremely deleterious for the ethical development of the youth. So there are all these things valorized in the Iliad and the Odyssey and in the, and in the uh, hymns of Hesiod. Like Ganymede being the cupbearer for Zeus. Yeah. Mm. And this is actually in Plato's Laws, saying that is dis despicable, it's wrong. Needs to be eradicated. Like he, he he used that in his example. Yeah, gangsterism, right. sadism, um, rape and pillage. Yeah, mm. and you know, uh, basically valorization of a god who's extremely manipulative and a deceiver. And actually, Plato in particular goes on at length in this one very duplicitous passage in Republic about how a true god could never be a deceiver. Nope. Right, who, the, the good. Yeah, could never like change forms, and it, he can it, never be jealous. Never be jealous, and and never be deceptive, uh, insofar as he changes forms to manipulate people's perceptions and, right. and put them in various compromising situations. Which is all Zeus ever does: is shape shift and yeah. rape and abuse people. Hmm. Right, and moreover, Zeus's messenger is Hermes, who is a career trickster. trickster. Mm -hmm. Right, the he's, Joker. The, he's the mouthpiece. He's the logo. Yeah. Right, so Plato is saying, look, we have a serious problem. We have to replace the religion of this society. And, but we have to do it in a way where we're not going to face massive resistance from the populace. And he's looking at what's already happened to Pythagoras mm -hmm. and Socrates, right? Not yeah. just, I mean, Socrates, obviously, the execution of Socrates by the Democratic Assembly of Athens. Wait, wait real quick, which is at the core of what we're saying. You have a philosopher at odds with the religious order of the day. Sorry for the mic. He was. They were at odds. He was put to death, put put on trial for this exact topic. Very explicitly. Yeah, so this is a big the, deal. The, two things about that. First of all, the charge against Socrates was disbelieving in the gods of the state and corrupting the minds of the youth. Yep. Okay. And then on the way to court, he runs into Euthyphro, who's basically like Billy Graham. He's like the yeah, evangelical yeah. preacher yeah. of the day. And he, you know, and Euthyphro is first like, well, why are they prosecuting you, Socrates? I mean, I, you know, and then by the end of the conversation, Euthyphro's attitude is basically, they should damn you to hell. Right. <laughs> they're, they're absolutely right to prosecute yeah. you. Mm. And, 
you know, Socrates basically gets into this argument with him about how you define the nature of the holy. You know, is the holy holy because it's good? Or is the good good because it's holy? Right? Wow. Mm. And so Plato has the precedent of the trial and execution of Socrates in his mind when he's considering how to deal with this problem. But he's also considering what happened to the Pythagoreans because, of course, he was a member of the Pythagorean order. Which was very influenced by Eastern Persian, yeah. ba- you know. Pythagoras, ba- as we've discussed pr- previously, Pythagoras spent a dozen years in, in the capital of the Persian Empire after having already been in Egypt for a very long time. Yeah. Right? He was scooped up by the Persians and brought back with them to the capital. Pythagoras, you know, his schools were burned down by the... Actually, I mean, it wasn't the... The masses of Sicily are the ones who burned down the schools, but they were riled up by the aristocrats of Sicily Mm -hmm. who were furious that their daughters, for example, were being taught to think for themselves so that they wouldn't make good wives anymore who are going to be in the kitchen or whatever, you know? and uh, Those damn Athenian Democrats. Yeah, because Pythagoras would teach women, and in fact he would have women as teachers in his school. And this was one of the radical doctrines that he taught that was at odds with conventional Greek morality and another one was that he t- was teaching reincarnation, which was at odds with the conventional Olympian religion. Yeah. Right? So anyway, Plato has the burning of the Pythagorean schools in mind and the death of Pythagoras eventually as a result of the injuries sustained in the fires. And then the execution of Socrates by the Democratic Assembly of Athens on charges of heresy and corrupting the minds of the youth. So he's thinking to himself, how are we going to solve this problem without you know, my getting myself killed? And by the way, he almost got himself killed. So Plato, just as a as a side, Aristotle note, too. Aristotle, Aristotle too. had to flee Athens. No, most people don't know this. On one of the accounts, he had to take a sword and kill himself, and he he was forced out of Athens. He was, he was Aristotle, into exile. the great yeah. Aristotle, yeah. that everyone thought is this great philosophical scientific thinker, ended his life because he was forced out of that. Isn't that just mind-blowing? Let me say something about but that. But this is, this is to I the core back. of this conversation. It, it, it is. And let me say something about that before yeah. I come back to Plato, okay. right? Because the thing is with Aristotle, and when I read Aristotle for the first time, I have to say I hated him. I hated yeah, Aristotle. Yeah, he can't stand him. Because he's, so he's such a fucking conservative. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he's in many places justifying all the worst prejudices mm-hmm. of conventional Greek society, the place subordinate place of women, the yeah. institution No, no wonder of the Christians liked him so They love much. him. They oh, love yeah, him. It they fits love perfectly. Him. Yeah. yeah. So the fusion of Aristotle with Christianity, in my view, was the worst thing Thomism. that happened in recorded human history. Yeah. Okay, be that as may. So he's justifying all these. So I, I had a big problem with him when I read him. But to be fair, when you look more closely at Aristotle, the reason he wound up exi- self-exiled right, from Athens is because, for example, the guy was writing constitutions for various Greek city-states on contract. He had a think tank, and they would come to his think tank, various Greek city-states, secretly, and be like, Aristotle, look, our population thinks like this. This is the culture here. Study it. He's like an early sociologist. Right. And he would study that culture and figure out what kind of constitution was appropriate for that city-state yeah. that would be you know, conducive to the development of their ethos, but still within the parameters that could be accepted by that culture. And that's extremely dangerous. When you have a guy who has the, the freedom of thought... And, he, and he, he's tutoring Alexander the Great. Yeah. Yes. We're talking... Yeah. This person was so on top of the world that he... He was playing the world like a chessboard. 
That's how high level this yes. person is. Yeah, well, this is why he wound up tutoring Alexander. Yeah. Because he had already studied all the different Greek city-states on contract to write their constitutions for, for their government leaders who would secretly come to him in his think tank. Right. And the problem with a guy like that is that when you can understand Sparta and Athens equally well, yeah. the Sparta who wound up in a war with each other, oh, yeah. hate right? Each other. Hate, yeah. And you have a breadth of perspective that's beyond that conflict, well, that person doesn't have any deep allegiance to any government. Right. He's already thinking on a level way deeper or higher than... He's a globalist. Well, he has a cosmic horizon of understanding, let's say, which yeah. could lend itself uh, toward a, yeah. a certain cosmopolitanism. But to be fair to Aristotle, he'd never explicitly embraced any cosmopolitanism because he believed that you had to sort of have a type of government that suits the, the values of a local population. Yeah. But, but here's the thing. In, in so doing, That's true. he is putting himself above and beyond all distinct peoples. And yeah. that makes him dangerous. Yeah. Okay? And then, of course, there was, you know, his biological work. He would, he would go and, like, uh, get all the weird sea creatures that got caught in the nets of the fishermen at the Piraeus and ask them to let him bring them back for dissection in the laboratory. Like study so he's discovering all these, like, heretical things scientist. about organisms mm. and whatever. Yeah. yeah. So theoretically, though, if he were to not have been uh, killed... Uh, what exactly could we see happen? Well, from he this went presence? into exile. There's conflicting account, mm. you know. But he, he really, you know, we can't say he was executed, but he was yeah. driven into exile. He was driven yeah. out, right? And he said, "I don't want the Athenians to have <clears throat> blood on their hands again." It was enough that they killed Socrates. Mm. Well, so in the case that uh, exactly, if we yeah. if we uh, if we make some kind of predictions, like what could have been if some figure as dangerous as Aristotle was allowed to continue on with his work, what do you think would have happened? Well, me, before you even answer that, his work did continue on because his students, uh, Theophrastus, um, Demetrius, Philarion, they go down into Alexandria and set up these schools down there. So Aristotle and Plato, their, their ideas flourish on. Not only not to mention, the Macedonian Empire was sort of his brainchild. Yeah. And so he is really not what, what what else more do you think is going to happen from that? You know what I mean? So it made no sense to exile the guy. I don't if know. Well, it went against the current of progress in history. Okay? Yeah. But that's a broader argument that I want to make and it takes time to unpack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's go back to Plato. Okay. So Plato he's looking at the precedent of Pythagoras and Socrates and He's saying to himself, well, we can't... Oh, yeah, I wanted to... This is where you brought in Aristotle. I was going to say, Plato, despite his aim of not riling up the masses uh, and getting himself killed, almost did get himself killed. He went to Syracuse, and he tried to basically turn the tyrant of Syracuse, Dionysus, into Dionysus. a philosopher king by conspiring with Dionysus' uncle, Dion, who was a member of the court of Syracuse. And very long story short... Um, he makes three separate attempts to do this, and each time he's forced to like flee Syracuse. Yeah. He almost at the, died at risk to his life, and he does it again. He got snuck out and again. They keep boat. begging him to and, come back. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and the third time though, it, it gets to a place where Dion. They realize Dionysus is irredeemable, and Dion attempts a coup against his nephew, and then really like you know people are going to get killed, and he's going to be one of them, and he has to be. Uh, evacuated by boat in the middle of the night back to Athens. You know, why am I bringing up the story? Just as a side note, 
You know the saying, the American saying, you know, uh, fooled me once, you know, shame right. on you. you, fool me twice, shame on me, right? Yeah. Um, people could say this about me because I've done things like this sure. repeatedly. And, uh, you know, the alt-right association, what I did with the Iranian Renaissance. Prometheism could be seen as another ve such venture. Um, <laughs> and someone could say, well, look, this guy doesn't learn a lesson, right? But no, 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 you don't understand. I think like Plato. No, right? he was doing something important. Right, so what was he doing? Okay, so Plato, he says, how are we going to do this? Well, we have to take the existing myths and folklore that this culture is conversant with, yeah. and we have to spin it in a way that's going to be more constructive to the development, particularly of the ethos of the youth, all right, that's going to re-educate the society from youth in a more constructive fashion. But we have to do it by, we can't introduce something completely alien to these people or demand that they grasp really abstract principles. We have to work with their existing folklore and their mythology and reshape it in a way that's going to be conducive to their flourishing. So essentially, this is the idea of the noble lie. People think that the noble lie in, in Republic is only that one section where he literally uses the phrase, you know, uh, a noble lie in reference to creating a eugenic breeding system where he's discussing how people who are fit to breed with one another should be matched up and, you know, th that lotteries should be used to pair people for proper weddings and the way these lotteries are conducted should actually be deceptive. But the end result will be good in terms right. of, you know, a eugenically bred population. So people Bre weren't allowed to know that they were being eugenically bred. Right. They assumed it was randomness. Yeah. Right. That was the, that was the noble lie, uh, you know, uh, the small noble lie. That's the one he explains, right? right? That's the explicit noble lie. But the much bigger noble lie in Republic is that he's saying we have to create a false religion. Right. We, meaning the philosophers who are supposed to be the guardians of the society and who, who in his ideal state are like the capstone of, of a very, frankly, pyramidal structure, right? These philosophers have to uh, institutionalize a religion which they themselves don't believe in, right? a false religion. And I, can I say this? I almost think that a lot of it's in response to Heraclitus and, and, and his earth-shattering, very Zoroastrian uh, approach to idolatry, to the fact that everything's a state of flux and that there really is no, uh, I don't know. I feel like he's, what Plato's saying is, if Heraclitus is, is correct, we need to figure out a way to fix this so that people don't find this stuff out. We need to be sheltered from this. This is too damaging for anyone to take in. Now, I don't want to go too forward into this conversation until okay. we're ready, but when it comes to somebody like Nietzsche, from what I understand, he was praising not the Greeks of the time of uh, Plato and Socrates, but of the Greeks that came before, who, according to him, were living much more in this organic philosophical life. But at the same time, Jason, you were just talking about how a lot of Greeks before uh, you know Plato and Socrates, they were... 
uh, dancing to the tune of all of these violent uh, gods. So who exactly, and we could touch upon this a little bit later, but uh, who, in short, do you think he was referring to here when it comes to these Greeks infatuated by philosophy before Plato and Socrates? Okay, that's a very complex question. We have to come back to it mm. uh, to unpack that. But in short, it's clear to me that the single figure that Nietzsche most reveres from out of all Greek culture is Heraclitus. Heraclitus. Mm. And so that brings us back to how you were framing this. Right. So let me, let me just uh, you know, riff off of that, which is that, yes, uh, Plato, I mentioned Pythagoras and I mentioned Socrates as two significant influences on Plato and two lessons to Plato about what happens to you if you tell the truth to these people. Right or or you know, fundamentally challenge their worldview in an unfiltered, unmitigated way. Right. But a third example is Heraclitus. Heraclitus wound up spending the later part of his life sequestered to the Temple of Artemis. He took refuge in the Temple of Artemis, and he wouldn't leave for any other reason than to play games with children on the temple steps. The, the kids who were left on the steps by their parents who were visiting the temple to make offerings. Right. And so he basically isolated himself from his entire society. Actually, Heraclitus went so far as to say, after the, uh, after the Ephesian revolt against the Persian Empire, because mm -hmm. he was living in a city that was part of the Persian Empire. So actually, Heraclitus was a Persian subject. Yeah. And Heraclitus was not only a Persian subject, he was literally invited by Darius the Great. The, Di the goddess Diana, Ephesus, is from Persia. Yeah, Artemis, Artemis, the original version, Artemis. 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 So he literally was invited by Darius to be the court philosopher of Iran. He declined because, and I've argued this in, in for example, Iranian Leviathan at length, Heraclitus was like a holier-than-the-Pope Persian. His attitude toward Darius was, why should I come to Babylon or Persepolis and be corrupted and softened in your court? You come reconquer this city and get rid of this scum. And he said, he literally said that every single man in Ephesus should be hung. He said every single Ephesian should be hung to the last man and the city should be left to the children. <laughs> and that's why he spent his time in the temple of Artemis. Artemis, Arta Mesha, who was a Persian Sarmatian, goddess. Sarmatian Iranian goddess. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, Wait, but what was the problem he had with the people there? Why did he want him to hang? His problem with them was the same problem with the people of Athens who executed Socrates and the same mobs who burned down the Pythagorean schools. He thought that they were extremely superstitious, willfully ignorant people with utterly baseless opinions who certainly should not be determining government policy. In other words, that Ephesus should not be a democracy. Hmm. And it was a democratic revolt in Ephesus against the Persian Empire that had taken place. Right. And they had actually exiled Heraclitus' personal friend, who had been the satrap, the Persian governor of Ephesus. A Greek, but who was governing Ephesus on, on behalf of the Persians. Anyway, Plato also has the example of Heraclitus. Just like Macedon, in the Macedon was a satrap of Persia 100 years before, uh, well, less than a century before Philip of Macedon. Yes, the whole area was. Yeah. Anyway, but the point is this. Plato's looking at all this. And Plato wasn't just a member of the Pythagorean order. He studied under a Heraclitean teacher for a long time, okay? He had this teacher, Cratylus, who was like the next generation after Heraclitus, a representative of Heraclitus's thinking. And 
Aristotle tells us, and I believe it was in the metaphysics, that Plato never relinquished his Heraclitian worldview. That the, the Heraclitian worldview exactly. that Plato adopted in his youth what he really believes. remained the basis of all his thinking. And that the theory of forms was sort of developed uh, in a utilitarian fashion on the basis of Plato already having accepted Heraclitus's account of the world. Now, what he means by that, I explained at length in my essay on Plato in this book, Lovers of Sophia, and we've done a program where we talk about this. Um, in my essay, Pharmacon Artist and Lovers of Sophia, I talk about essentially how Plato thought that Heraclitus's understanding of the cosmos was far too dynamic, chaotic, and ecstatic for most people to be able to bear. It's dooming. It's like it, it causes doomers. Well, it, 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 would, it would drive people to madness. To, yeah. Right? Because it's very it's hard to... It's, well, and it's it can, especially deleterious to a society where rational thought hasn't been cultivated in the first place. That's the mm -hmm. issue. Is that Heraclitus went straight from dealing with people who see the world through the lens of Homer and Hesiod to supra-rational thought, to thought that is beyond the limits of reason. In other words, Heraclitus yeah. understood reason perfectly well. I mean, he read Pythagoras, he studied Pythagoras, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And he actually thought Pythagoras was superficial. Yeah. And so he was studying early rationalism, but Heraclitus could see beyond that. And what Plato thought looking at this is that, look, these people, if, if we want to do any good for society, and we want to start to educate people in a way that sharpens their critical faculties, we cannot expose them immediately to the madness that's in the writings of Heraclitus, right? So we need to invent some belief system that's going to be like a life raft or like a, you know, uh, you know a child's transitional object or something. Something to yeah. believe in. Right, yeah. yeah. That, that's going to at first cultivate the rational faculty in people right. and also develop a more cohesive sense of ethics, right, than anything you're going to get from Homer or Hesiod. Right. Mm. Uh, and that becomes Plato's project, in, particularly in Republic. Yet the philosophers have, but here's, here's the thing, and this is to go back to Leo Strauss and the opening of the conversation, is that Plato recognizes that the form this has to take is a religion, okay? Yeah. You have to set up, like, rites and rituals and have a mythology and mm. it can't be coming from out of nowhere you have to work with what the people already believe in with their folklore but and it, their sure. symbols. but but if we take a step back for a second as far as what exactly is the view of heraclitus that plato is interested in it would be pretty wrong to say that heraclitus is pure becoming without being is that correct yeah look that that's correct but Look, I mean, this takes us into deep ontological questions. So, well, just, yeah. I just if anyone's wondering, just to give you an idea of what kind of mindset Heraclitus had against the religious dogmas of his day, there's a passage in his in his fragments where he says these people who set up idols and pray to them, thinking that they're going to get some gift from the god, they're so dumb, they don't understand the true nature of God, which is an all-pervading fire. Hmm. Which he calls logos. Yeah. So, so look. This is it. So, but, but the reason why I'm saying that, yeah. I'm saying he was not 
in sync with the Homeric Hesiodic. Mm-hmm. He is, and it's, and it's very Persian with the fire god. Yeah. Zor, you know. But but just even before that, just so we define for the viewers, what exactly is becoming and what exactly is being? Because these terms, you know, I just threw oh, them out, but uh, it's important to understand that, and then we'll be able to dive a little bit deeper into this. So people have misconstrued Heraclitus as opposing becoming to being. In other words, there are some people who think that existence is singular, absolutely unified, and eternal. That there's an unchanging unity of existence, and that change in time is an illusion. Uh, the epitome of that in Heraclitus' own time was Parmenides, who Plato also read in depth. And, and he, he, Plato writes dialogues where Socrates, his mouthpiece, is uh, in conversation with an elder Parmenides. And so there's this view, you know, where being is reality, and becoming, in other words, change, is just illusion. Well, yeah, day uh, and night are not, this, are not different. It's just the absence of the sun. And it's not, it's not, like, it's not like there's two different things. They are just... Two, well, yeah, but now two. you're conflating Heraclitus with Parmenides. Okay, hold on. Uh, so so par- this is the view of Parmenides, okay. and you find this in Advaita Vedanta in India, for example. Around about the same time, already in the Upanishads, you had this view, okay? Some people think that what Heraclitus is saying is that, no, no, um, look, it's, it's all just change and there's no existence at all, and everything is completely ephemeral to where we can't like even form a coherent thought, right? And uh, that seems to have been the position of Cratylus, who was the teacher that Plato studied under, where Cratylus said, Heraclitus was wrong to say you can't step into the same river twice. You can't even step into the same river once because, you know, the river is changing as you're stepping into it. It's not the same river. And also, like, you know, whatever, the atoms in your foot are changing, right? So this is a kind of ridiculous caricature of what Heraclitus is saying in his own writings on nature. Sure. And what I argue in in my essay on Plato in Lovers of Sophia is that Plato could not possibly have believed this to be the view of Heraclitus. He must have studied Heraclitus in depth for himself because the man's a genius, and he would never take anything on the authority of a second-hand account. Uh, so if you actually read Heraclitus, what you see is that he has a much more nuanced view of the relationship between being, nothingness, and becoming. So that there is a kind of unity of being insofar as everything that's differentiated is connected to everything else. There is a kind of like a a dialectical dance of opposites between various phenomena in nature. Like this is what you're saying about the night and day, warm and cold, and so on and so forth. And everything that we identify as a pair of opposites actually is deeply interconnected, right? And in in this sense, he's saying the same thing as Gautama Buddha. When Gautama Buddha talks about the mutual interdependence of arising phenomena, Right, the mutual dependence of phenomena. So Heraclitus is saying that. And in that sense, there is a kind of unity of being, the right? Yin, where, it's a yin and yang. Yeah, where yeah. everything is interconnected. That doesn't mean everything is one. 
because uh, the essence of, of uh, Heraclitus's account of the cosmos is precisely the tension and dynamic opposition of these polarities, yes. which are in their tension connected to each other, right? And he also is often mistaken as having believed that fire is the fundamental element from out of which everything else arises, because we had thinkers like Thales before water, him water. who thought that like earth and fire come out of water, that you know there's this one element, water, and all the other elements are derivative from it. And then later you get people like Empedocles who think that there are these four elements and everything is constituted from out of them. So people think that Heraclitus was this thinker uh, of you know elements as fundamental constituents of the cosmos and that fire for him was the primary element. Not true. Okay. Werner Heisenberg, in his uh, book Physics and Philosophy, very much takes the same view that Martin Heidegger does in his writings and, and lectures on Heraclitus, which is that Heraclitus was grasping for what we now understand to be quantum potential when he was talking about fire. What Heraclitus means when he says everything is fire ever changing its forms, the cosmos is fire ever changing its forms, yeah. right? Not created by any god or man. What he means is that uh, it, everything is energy. And energy is in a potential state that is constantly changing in terms of the phenomena that manifest from out of this potential. And this potential is also in a dynamic relationship with consciousness, which he refers to as psyche in his, psyche, in his yeah. writings. It's very clear from the references to Psyche in the fragments of Heraclitus that Heraclitus thinks that Psyche is connected to this fire, that Psyche and this fire are in some kind of a dynamic interplay in terms of how phenomena manifest in the cosmos, right? So Plato understands all this, but where Heraclitus takes you is to a place so far beyond conventional morality and even beyond... Um, the kind of thinking that would be conducive to the rise of science, right? What the Greeks call episteme, or disciplined, rational inquiry and investigation. It's so far beyond even the limits of that, that in a society that's still submerged in mythical and superstitious thinking, it's too much to take, right? So you need to come up with uh, a pharmacon, like a measured dose of snake poison. Yeah that's actually a medicine for this sick society. And that's this false religion. The idea of dueling opposites that, as these dueling opposites are battling each other, it moves the timeline forward of reality itself. Well, Heraclitus was invited by Darius to become the court philosopher of the Persian Empire, right? right? So Heraclitus must have been deeply conversant with, with Persian thought. Yeah. Right? I mean... Instead of picking some magi to be the court philosopher of Iran, he invites this Greek from Ephesus. Why? Well, because he recognizes in Heraclitus sure. someone who understands the deepest Mithraic or Zoroastrian thought of yeah. Iran. Well, what's the heart of that way of thinking? If you look back at the Gathas of Zarathustra, you see that there is this idea of a dialectical struggle as the motor of creation in the right. cosmos where you have these two principles, sepantominu, the progressive mentality, which is the principal quality of the Lord of Wisdom, Ahura Mazda, right? And then you have angraminu, which later is contracted to Ahriman, the constraining, retarding principle. 
So you have the progressive mentality pushing things forward, bringing new forms, new shapes of things, not to confuse it with platonic forms. Right. The Sepanta Munu is bringing uh, new shapes into being, right? It's like the shape of things to come is the force of Sepanta Minu. But then you need a little bit of stabilization and ossification in order for the the creative energy to like actually congeal in uh, types and structures that people can experience and process, right? And so this constraining and constricting force is also part of the machinery of the cosmos. And Heraclitus, I think, understood that very well in his capacity to think beyond polar opposites. So yes, it's coming from that. And so Heraclitus must also have understood that the dynamic flux is progressive. In other words, it is a creative uh, teleology that's at work in the cosmos. That's another reason why I think he adopts the metaphor of fire from the Persians, because it's the fire of the forge. The cosmos is like a giant forge of new forms, <clears throat> right? This does bring up uh, another question, though, when it comes to a belief that I, uh, from what I understand, the Jews adopted from the Persians during their exile, where there is a uh, end-of-day scenario of these two oppositions. And that likewise brings up the question of the complete opposite. What is the unmoving mover? What is the origination of all of this to begin with, unless it's always been and always existed, and that's well, well, all there's to it? Well, that's Heraclitus' answer, is that it's always been and always existed. He says, this cosmos, fire ever living, uncreated by any god or man. And, you know, I think that's the esoteric view uh, of the Persians as well. Their exoteric teaching was that somehow, like, they had a whole mythology about how, you know, um, Ahura Mazda, basically, from out of his divine intelligence, which is like what the Greeks would later call nous, the, the, the intelligence the of the cosmos, nous, yeah. the cosmic mind. Ahura Mazda, from out of his divine intelligence, basically exploded the cosmos as myriad sparks of light. Right. And then from out of this, Mazda fashions an ideal world, a world of ideal beings, which become Plato's forms. Yeah. In the original Persian, they're called um, uh, fravashis. And these fravashis, they, they are become the templates for beings in our realm. So Plato's, by the way, getting all this from understanding Persian theology, let's say. Onto theology. Right. And so then what happens is then Ahriman or Angraminu attacks this world of light, right? And uh, corrupts the creation of Ahura Mazda. And then you have basically a purification mechanism put into place where through the dialectical struggle between Sepantaminu and Angraminu, you're going to have eventually the, the purification of the contaminated creation of Mazda. And on the other side of it, we're going to have this fiery transformation of the world. Again, the element of fire. The Fereshgard is a refreshing of the world through its conflagration. Yeah. And so it's an alchemical metaphor, okay? It's like the alchemical furnace. And the earth is going to come out the other side of that, including the beings on the earth, having been in some way uh, perfected so that the Fravashis are more adequately reflected in the tangible 
uh, world of our experience. Yeah. And and this is they they des- describe that as our becoming our farbahars, which means our becoming our angelic forms. The whole idea of angels and all this from Christianity was brought out of Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism. It was brought yeah. out of Zoroastrianism Absolutely. into Christianity. Yeah. So this original notion was that we each have like an angelic form, which is our like potential at the end of history. Right. And over time, we're, you know, unfolding this potential up till this confl- conflagration, this apocalypse, that's going to purify the whole world. And then we each, you know, it's, a, it's almost now, like, oh, hold, hold sure. on a minute. Yes. All of that is exoteric. Yeah. Yeah. There was an esoteric Persian teaching, which if you want to understand it, read my book, Iranian Leviathan. And this is what I think Heraclitus studied and understood. This is what I've been trying to get Which at. is that it's not some process like that that unfolds in time. That's like, it's like a children's tale that you take. And this takes us to Plato and how he thought you needed to come up with a story that right. people who think like children are going to be able to process and understand. So do you think... Plato or Plato saw the Zoroastrian religion as not good enough. Like, like why not just adopt Zoroastrian as a religion? For two reasons. One, it's actually too demanding. It's too rational and too abstract oh. for the Greeks who have grown up on Homer and Hesiod. They would because, because look, Zarathustra. If you read the Gathas. He, there are no gods and, you know, religious rituals. There's not a single religious ritual in the Gathas. The yeah. Avesta came later. Right. There's not a single religious ritual in the Gathas. There aren't any gods that are referred to. Even Mithra is not referred to in the Gathas. It's just this abstract divine intelligence, right. Ahura Mazda, the, the Lord Wisdom. Wisdom. Yeah, divine Wisdom. Yeah. It's philosophy. Right? I remember Heraclitus says in the fragments... Um, wisdom is one alone, the only one worthy of worship. Sophia. Willing and unwilling to be called by the name of Zeus, which is an interesting turn of phrase, meaning like the true God is willing to let you mistake it for see Zeus. Where, see where the Gnostics got that from? Mm. Sure, sure. So, so anyway, but the point is this. It was too abstract. Yeah. What is this like? divine intelligence and then this principle of constriction or constraint right that's not like some devil running around yeah. right that's not like uh the greek titans or something it's not like uh, atlas or whatever or whoever whatever mischief maker you might conceive of from the greek pantheon like prometheus opposing the will of zeus no um actually if anything the closest greek mythological figure to Aura Mazda is prometheus mm. right so Plato understood this, that I have to work, Plato, I have to work with the anthropomorphic pantheon of the Greeks and the stories that these children have already been raised on, but I have to spin them in more constructive ways. Gotcha. Right? Um, because he knows that Heraclitus, for example, has not just absorbed this exoteric uh, teaching that we see in the Gothas of Zarathustra, and then we see later in the Zoroastrian religion, this kind of teleology where the world is purified over time, and there's an apocalypse and so on and so forth. Heraclitus has actually absorbed an esoteric teaching about how the fire is ever living and how the cosmos was never created by anyone and how this, this process is going to continue indefinitely. And that's there are various names for that. 
you know, in in Persian esoteric thought, one of them is Zorvanism, because the 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 esoterics, yeah, the god of time. The the, the esoterics understood that Ahura Mazda and Ahriman are just two aspects of Zorvan, and Zorvan is eternal, but not an eternal one that's like static. It's a one that's that unfolds itself through dynamic tension that becomes basically a creative force in the world. There's an Orphic text that claims that Hades and Zeus are the chthonic and heavenly forms of Saturn Kronos, which is, ex- do you see how it mirrors yes, what you just said? Yes, a connection like, there. Yes, Zorvan sure. being Absolutely. split down. Yeah. There, uh, there is a question, though, when it comes to this uh, exoteric aspect of this in relation to people who like to meditate, for instance. Because when you're talking about this uh, eternal fire, for instance, people who engage in more tantric traditions would talk about kundalini, would talk about this primal sexual force that they are able to physically feel in their body going up through their spine. And there is, not to say a full conclusion, but there is in a way a kind of evolution that it takes place in the mind and the body of the person who is engaging in these practices. So there is some kind of a resolution that does happen. My question to you is, does any kind of resolution, even if it's not the final one, occur within this reality according to the exact same principles as something like a Tantra Kundalini Awakening? I think that the kind of meditative states that you're uh, describing bring you to a dilated state of consciousness and an altered perception of time that uh, is, let's say, phenomenologically blissful. In other words, you there, there's a, an ecstatic state that comes along with the altered perception of time. Uh, yeah. That's a result of this kind of practice. And it leaves you with the impression that you've somehow tapped into a reality behind the veil of appearances and transient phenomena. Hmm. There are various human psychological motivations, including a need for closure and a completeness of meaning in life, that... Uh, I think condition one's pers- one's interpretation of the phenomenology of that state, mm. so that you are then projecting onto that state the achievement of perfect insight into the nature of reality and a a sense of completion that's ultimate, beyond which mm. you know there, there there couldn't be anything else. So so, you, so I think it's a conflation. Of a site, the phenomenology of a psychological state with uh, ontological claims about the nature of reality and the evolution of the cosmos or the, or the lack thereof. It's one, like a category mistake. One quick counter that I would add is at least for the Buddhists who seem to be more uh, honest with themselves about what's going on they would never describe any state that they're in as being, well, this is the final state, this is the end well, you make of the my adventure. Point, you make my point perfectly, and I, I've used that example many times in other conversations, mm-hmm. is that Gautama was perfectly familiar with all of these states. I mean, he describes them in some detail, even in the Theravada sermons, let alone later Mahayana texts, but in the actual Theravada sermons that are probably historically closer 
to what Gautama taught, you have intricate descriptions of various altered states of consciousness. And the point that Gautama makes is you should not get fixated on these things and project from them the idea of a one God or of an eternal reality, namely Brahman, right? Buddha deconstructs the idea of Brahman as he also deconstructs the microcosm of the Atman, right? And he says that you neither have a, an eternal soul nor is there an eternal and absolutely unified reality. These are projections based on psychological needs that are warping and conditioning your perception of an altered state of consciousness, which it's possible to attain, including, including by focusing on the false idea of one God. He makes this point very clear. Like certain forms of yoga, you focus on Brahman or, or you know, the unity of being or whatever. Yeah. And it's a projection that allows you to attain samadhi. The om, they call it. The om. But it's a projection. Right. And later, the Tibetan Buddhists like are very fluid in their in their uh, practical use of this because they develop a whole system of deity um, deity meditation. Let's say where they will project and focus on deities which they know to be false. Right? They're like they mm -hmm. understand that these are these are ephemeral yeah. and symbolic. Let's say archetypal, like right? But, 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 but see, the thing is that a, Buddha, a proper Buddhist is, I think, even in a way deeper than Jung, because a proper Buddhist understands, and Jung, actually, he wrote a series of commentaries on Tibetan Buddhist texts. There was a series of uh, uh, translations by Evan, Evans Wentz in the mid-20th century, early to mid-20th century, Tibetan Book of the Dead, Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, Biography of Milarepa, where... Carl Jung wrote the prefaces to those. He wrote mm -hmm. the port. And so Jung studied this stuff, right? And Jung tried to understand it in terms of archetypal psychology. But I would say that the Buddhists are deeper than Jung because they understand that even the archetypes have no absolute reality, which is going to bring us back to the conversation of Plato. Mm. Yeah, there are such phenomena as archetypes in something like a collective unconscious. But if you think they're real, capital R, meaning that they're somehow eternal, you're still deluded. Okay? They're, they are also dynamic phenomena. It's, Ludwig Wittgenstein has a great metaphor for this, uh, the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein. He says, look, mostly what we express in language, which structures science, it structures religion, structures everything, language. Mostly what we express in language is like water flowing through a riverbed, right? It changes, and it, it you know, it, it, it's very fluid and dynamic. But there are certain hinge propositions, frameworks of meaning that structure all our expressions of language, whether they're religious belief systems or whether they're principles of scientific method. And these hinge propositions, they're tacitly assumed. We take them mm. for granted. We think that they're absolutely valid. It's like right? Rupert Sheldrake talks about how the nature of reality is more of a habit than it is something that is strictly yes. abiding by there, a certain there law. There I agree with Sheldrake. There I agree with him. And I, and I, I drew from that part of his work in Prometheus and Atlas. Hmm. The problem with Sheldrake is that then he's an Anglican. And I got into a whole thing with him. <laughs> I wrote him, and he was like, well, yeah, but you're a Satanist. And, and <laughs> so the, it didn't end well with Sheldrake. Anyway, so but the, the thing is that 
the hi the hinge propositions are assumed to be valid, yeah. like absolutely real. But Wittgenstein points out, no, they're like the riverbed, okay? The riverbed doesn't change as readily as the water flowing through it, but over time, like boulders going through the river right. will knock the riverbed. Sometimes there'll be tor torrential rains, and the riverbed will turn into like mud, yeah. and the riverbed itself can change its contours. So those are like the hinge propositions. They can also change. That's the nature of the Jungian archetypes. There are no Jungian archetypes in the collective unconscious that are eternal, that were they, that pre-existed humanity. Mm. Right? Like, like, for example, right? I agree. Uh, I if, think you're right. If yeah. you talk about the archetype of the divine mother, it's not going to have any relevance to a hermaphroditic species. Say, say there's another intelligent species on some other planet that doesn't even have sexual differentiation. They can't have that because it's, it's not universal. They're not, it's not universal. Yeah, it is not right. in some platonic realm of forms, yeah. right? Mm. Which brings us back to Plato. And did Plato really believe in these forms that he goes on about at such length in, in these various texts? I think you're making a good case that he didn't. And the case that I make in, in this essay on Plato and in Lovers of Sophia, and that we've discussed before, is that if you look at the way that Plato makes a straw man out of his pre-Socratic predecessors, namely Heraclitus and Parmenides, you see that he's deliberately misunderstanding, or let's say misrepresenting, these thinkers straw man, in order to construct the idea of forms as non-physical causes that shape the flux of phenomena in our experiential realm. So he, want, he wants to misconstrue Heraclitus as saying that everything is such a, a dynamic uh, flux that we can't make heads or tails out of anything and there's no basis to, to form you know, an, an opinion on any matter whatsoever, right? So he, so he wants to- That's dark. Basically, he wants to um, take the ground out from under your feet yeah. by presenting a superficial, nihilist. nihilistic, straw man account of Heraclitus. And then he wants to give you this life raft, which are the forms, mm. to say, oh, no, 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 but look, but there are these perfect models and prototypes which shape this flux into the things in our world, which we can then understand by applying our reason to, uh, to discern the way in which they are composites of eternal forms. And then we can start to have a method of analysis uh, that becomes the basis for science. In other words, episteme. We can start to have an epistemology. Plato sees this as um, educationally necessary. Mm -hmm. There's a Greek word. It's escaping me right now. <clears throat> he sees it as educationally necessary, but I don't think he actually believes it. Um, and, and moreover, on top of the fact that he doesn't believe that, He's advocating explicitly that the guardians, the philosopher rulers of an ideal state, ought to actually also invent a religion that's most conducive to the ethical development of the citizenry. But uh, here's the uh, very uh, interesting question I've had on my mind for quite a while regarding these forms. If you have something like the ideal triangle or the ideal idea of a square or even math, 2 plus 2 is not going to equal 5, no matter what kind of variety of universe you would want to uh, imagine happening. So there are still certain things that... Yeah, but that's a tautology. Yeah. Mm. It took, in other words, look, 2 plus 2 is never going to equal 5 
because this is a symbol system that has certain internal rules. Right, the rules. Right, of logic. it's in- internal rules. But the issue, the issue is this: is every phenomenon that takes place. I was going to say in nature, but I, I'd, I'm not going to say that. Let me just say every, because then we come to the question: is nature natural, or is nature artifice in some way? And is there anything that's not a product of artifice? And where does nature end and where does artifice begin? And that's a whole thing. But let's just say the real question is, is anything that takes place amenable to mathematical analysis, right? Mm -hmm. If math could comprehend all phenomena in the cosmos, then the rules of mathematics would be more than a tautology. They would be descriptive of some underlying structure. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest that actually there are phenomena that take place which cannot be comprehended by any like linear mathematics. Yeah, and the laws of physics actually do change at different subatomic levels of reality. So in this reality that we're in, the laws of physics are Newtonian. Once you go into the subatomic levels, Newtonian physics is gone. So the thing about that is that um, Thomas Kuhn uh, and Paul Feyerabend, I think both in starting in the 1960s, talked about how, wrote, talked about, wrote extensively about how uh, our various systems of physics are paradigms or um, frameworks of knowledge that change over time. And they're subject to change in a way that's comparable to political revolutions. In other words, the changes are not justified by some rational principles that lie outside of the paradigm, okay? And certain scientific paradigms are more adequate to understanding one or another class of phenomena in nature or accomplishing one or another end with technology, right? So if you want to get a rocket to the moon, you use Newtonian physics. But if you want to build... uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, if you want to do laser isotope enrichment or something of uranium, you're dealing with quantum physics. Right. Or, you know, running a cyclotron, you're dealing with quantum physics. So different physics paradigms are suited to different ends technologically, and they more or less, um, they more or less adequately grasp different aspects of nature. And... None of, at least as as Feyerabend would see it, or for for that matter, as Wittgenstein would see it, none of them are objective representations of nature. There are tools that are more or less suited to one or another purpose. And see, the thing I'm arguing in in my essay on Plato, to take it back to him, and this is of course heresy. It's academic heresy, but I think Plato. I, love it. I think Plato also thought this way. Uh, because Plato had such a grounding in in the thought of Heraclitus uh, that he was able to understand that there are no overarching or underlying rational principles that are outside of the flux. Mm. Okay? And that everything that we think has ultimately an empirical significance right empirical in the, in the sense that greek imperia has to do with the practical right so uh, you know pragmata and imperia uh are s- sort of like the 
of the essence of Heraclitus's thought. And I think that at the deepest level, Plato um, really never abandoned that, and that it, it remains the, the substrate of his thinking. So Plato is cre basically creating a morality to, to base an, a religious way of life off that is based on the philosophy of the time. It's false, but conducive to the development of character, and particularly when it's, when it's the basis of an educational system uh, that the citizenry are, are, you know, are raised yeah, uh, you know, because he gives a few examples in the Republic. For example, when he says, when 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 Homer depicts Achilles in the Odyssey, wailing and crying like a little baby in Hades, right? That why why would we ever depict our heroes? That's not a way to depict our heroes. They need to be happy that they are that they are. <clears throat> the the gloomy afterlife of Hades is no is no place that people should look forward to. People should look forward to being with the gods in per in Elysium. And he has this like, it almost is almost like setting up like a, a, what sounds like something more akin to the Judeo-Christian uh, heaven. Yeah, and the contradictions in Plato's views on the afterlife mm -hmm. are a huge clue that I use to make my case, okay. right? So for example, in, <clears throat> in um, some of his writings, uh, Plato says that you cannot fully grasp the forms while you're still in your body because the senses distort your apprehension of the forms. Mm. And the forms can only be grasped by pure intellect, right? And you have to cultivate your intellect so that once you're dead and free from your body, you're going to be able to contemplate the forms. And he also, wow. he also says, and I think it was in, in Mino, that we're able to recognize circles as circles and triangles as triangles because we've seen perfect circles and perfect triangles before we were born, before we came into this body, with our, with our rational intellect, right? So here's a view of the afterlife <clears throat> where there's no sensory perception at all. You die, and you're free from the distortion of the senses— so that your reason can clearly apprehend the realm of forms. Then, in, I think it's in Phaedo, in the death scene, when, you know, Socrates' friends and, and followers are gathered around him, and he's about to drink the hemlock, and they're all losing their minds, and some of them are weeping, and he says to them, listen, there's no reason why you should be so upset, because, uh, you know... It, if I com could commit myself upon anything, I can commit myself to knowing that I will be leaving here to go to a much better place where I'll be surrounded by all the best people. Right. And, you know, we'll just sit around and we'll be having conversations. It'll be a great place. Mm -hmm. And all the heroes and all the great thinkers will be there. In, in Plato's dialogue, this is prefaced by one of Socrates' disciples saying to him, uh, if we're like frightened children, Socrates, tell us a tale that's going to ease our fears or something. Mm. And Socrates says, if I could commit myself upon anything, I could commit myself upon this, this account of the afterlife, which is clearly yeah. a sensory afterlife, but it's a good afterlife. It's like the beyond, the, the going to the light yes. of contemporary New Age thinking, that 
you know, when you die and you go into the light, mm -hmm. your friends and family are going to be there to meet you and so on and so forth, right? It's all good. If you've been a virtuous person and mm -hmm. Socrates knows that he has and so therefore he, he will have that kind of afterlife. Yeah. Then in Republic, in Republic, he talks about how when you die, depending on the kind of person you've been, you will go potentially into a, a subterranean hellish afterlife realm Tar Tartarus. where you wander, basically Tartarus, where you wander as a Soma pneumaticon, as a, a person who's disembodied but still has sensory experience and still feels pleasure and pain, right? So it's basically akin to the Tibetan account of the bardo in the Book of the Dead. And you go through this, um, you know, this potentially hellish experience, uh, or, or you wander the earth and have various phantasmagoric things happen to you. And then at the end of that, you wind up in a place where you have to, like, look into different possible future lives. And there's one that sort of, that you're drawn to based on how you've lived your right. present life. And there's a river with like the milk of forgetfulness, forgetfulness. in it, and you have to drink yeah. from this river, lethe, the river of forgetfulness. Yeah. And by the way, the Greek word for truth, aletheia, is a privative of that. So it's like aletheia is like a privative of yeah. the lethe, the river of forgetfulness. Forgetfulness, right? right. So, and there's a secret Orphic text, and the secret is skip. The because you're you're died you you're died so you're thirsty you're gonna see this mm -hmm. gleaming clear mm -hmm. river and you're gonna want to drink from it. They say don't do it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Go to the next one. Once you find there'll be another river. That's yes. the river of remembering, and then you get to keep your mind into your next life. Yes. And it's very similar don't go into the light. Yeah. And it's very similar to in the Tibetan Book of the Dead when they talk about avoiding the lesser lights mm -hmm. of the bardo. Mm -hmm. And continuing onwards, yeah. But, yeah. But, 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 like, here's my point. Before you go off into another direction, the point is, Plato is not an idiot. Right. He's not just like contradicting himself mm -hmm. from dialogue to dialogue. True. Okay. I've yeah. always wondered about if, this. If he's saying these things that are blatantly contradictory, it you have to wonder whether he believes any of them. He does this right? with Parmenides too, in the in the dialogue of Parmenides. He straw man's parmenides absolutely he turns parmenides into a dumbass absolutely hmm. so yeah. well this could be reaching on my part here but there was a conversation we were having uh several weeks ago when i asked you about what you think the nature of the afterlife realm is and one thing that you told me is that to all the accounts that you've seen the likeliest scenario is that people are not going to be surrounded by other beings that they are going to be isolated but they are going to be in this world and they are also going to have projections from within themselves that they are going to encounter so my question is could the projections of somebody like socrates be so powerful that he would in fact be living in this realm of all these wonderful people that he would enjoy com uh, conversing with before transitioning into something else. And from that- okay, Two it, things, yes. two things. First of all, that's not what Plato is saying. He's not mm. saying in Phaedo, Socrates will experience his own projections based on his deeply internalized convictions for a time until then he's forced to reincarnate. Mm. In the Phaedo, there's no re talk of reincarnation. And it's just that, like, this is the afterlife for a virtuous person. That's it. In Republic, it's all about reincarnation and going through this bardo state on the way to reincarnation. 
And then there's this third, the one that I started with in my yeah. account of it, where there's no sensory afterlife at all. When you die, you're freed from the distortion of the senses. And if you've per properly cultivated your rational faculty, you're able to perfectly perceive the realm of forms, right? So these are contradictory. Right. Meaning you're dealing with a duplicitous writer who is telling you one or another tale for a certain purpose, okay? And where you're going to have to really read between the lines if you want to understand... Or, or, or at least... It's very similar to you. <laughs> well, okay. So this is... There's a reason why... No, there's a reason why I'm, like, putting this out here. Yeah. Okay? Because I think it becomes increasingly evident in my new book, Erosophia, that there's a whole esoteric dimension of my thinking, which has been there from the beginning, but it's been somewhat occulted, and that actually my project of Prometheism is very much exoteric, and very much in line with what Plato was doing in Republic when he, <laughs> with, with this tremendous audacity, suggested that philosophers ought to invent a religion for people to believe in that will be conducive to their flourishing and the cultivation of their ethos. Okay. But that's a religion that is superficial and contrived by comparison to what the philosopher understands and how a philosopher thinks. And this brings us back to the question that we started with. I mean, yes. the, the, the fundamental question at hand here, which is the conflict between philosophy and religion. What Plato is trying to do, which Zarathustra tried and failed in a way to do before him, was to establish the dominance of philosophy over religion. And I say Zarathustra failed before him. What ultimately happened with Zoroastrianism was, in some ways, the greatest travesty in all of um, intellectual and religious history, which is that this tremendously progressive, cosmic, visionary teaching in the Gathas wound up becoming a sterile, orthodox, repressive, conservative religion that bolstered uh, the totalitarian state of the Sasanid Empire. Okay? And I'm convinced, and I argue in Iranian Leviathan, that the orthodox Zoroastrianism, which is a contradiction in terms, uh, of the Sasanids was responsible to the fall of Iran to Islam. Mm. That, you know, there were all these uh, esoteric revolts against Sasanid Zoroastrianism, all these antinomian, libertine, you could call them Gnostic movements. Yeah. Mani. Like Mani, much more uh, politically relevant Mazdak, Mazdakism, mm -hmm. and various other um, forms of dissension that shattered the Sassanid Empire to the point where it could then be conquered by Islam. Okay? Now, there's all kinds of other complexities mm -hmm. there involving Salman of Farsi. Yeah. You know, we don't right, have to right, get into yeah, that right, right now. Right. But the point is that, see, Zarathustra in the long run failed. Even in, in Plato's looking at Zarathustra and thinking, look, this is too complex and abstract to import into Greek society. Yeah. It turned out that Plato was so right that not only was it too complex and abstract for Greek society, it was too complex and abstract for Persian society. Yeah. And they wound up creating a grotesque caricature from out of it yeah. that then uh, so alienated people and oppressed them that uh, the country wound up at war with itself and then overrun by, you know, 
Arab Muslim armies. Is this what Nietzsche is getting at with this, the, the negation of the Dionysian and what that can lead to? Well, yeah. If you want to explain that. Y yeah, is this yeah. going off topic? or uh, what No. You... No, I think it's time to bring yeah. Nietzsche up. Yeah. No, I think, yeah. I think it's totally relevant. Yeah. The issue is this. So it's a question of the balance between the Apollonian and the Dionysian, which Nietzsche first broaches in The Birth of Tragedy, which, which where he levels some very unfair critiques at Plato. He turns Socrates into a straw man and paints this portrait of Socrates as a buffoon, and he, yeah. he just makes, I mean, he trolls Plato. He, he, to be he, frank, he's he, trolling. Everyone he's, gets it from him. Yeah. He just, he disses everybody. Yeah, he's trolling Plato. Yeah. They're, they're horrendously he's, unfair remarks. Yeah. Um, and I have to wonder whether, whether Nietzsche really believed these things. Wait, whether, what were the remarks specifically? What were the accusations that he was leveling, leveling at Plato? Well, he thinks that Plato devalues um, the world of our experience. As a merely apparent, Plato world. was too rational. He said, yeah. uh, well, it's, the, the, "The real issue is it's a de Nietzsche blames Plato for the devaluation of our world of experience. Yeah, through the of postulation the of a higher transcendental reality, mm. right? This is Which why, is the real world. This is why it calls Christianity Platonism for the Platonism people. for the masses, because yeah. you see the idea of heaven and the angelic hierarchy and all that. He thinks is like a uh, reinterpretation for the masses, a packaging for the masses of the Platonic transcendental realm of forms, which is reality, capital R, and then our realm of immediate experience is then a devalued, merely apparent world. It's like a mm. world of illusions and but, fallen uh, world. But would that not mean that Nietzsche would be a bigger admirer of these... Uh, rapping, you could say, uh, ancient Greeks influenced by Homer, who would just be more like puppet beings that would be engaging in like this play, as opposed to people who are no, no, no. There's no way you can justify that. Look, he, Nietzsche Nietzsche talks a lot of shit. Mm. <laughs> you have to read Nietzsche very carefully. Yeah, because yeah. there are places where Nietzsche like suddenly gets big on Homer and he start, you know, he. But you have to look at the big picture, okay? Nietzsche ultimately his He's like Plato, he's very Yes, and that's where I want to go with this <laughs> is that Nietzsche he's... ultimately wants us to evolve beyond the human condition, right? He literally says that man is a tightrope between the ape and the overman. Yeah. Right? A tightrope is not somewhere you want to stay. Right? You cannot stay in a fixed place on a tightrope. You either have to go back mm -hmm. to the ape or you have to dash forward or leap forward to the overman. And so Nietzsche wants such a radical evolution beyond the human condition that there's no way in hell he's advocating that we go back to being these, you know, unreflective, superstitious, uh, you know, uh, people. Grug-brained. Grug yeah, uh, exactly, of, right. the, of the Homeric age. And by the way, if you want a great book on that, Eric Havelock, Preface, Preface to, to Plato. Plato. Great book. Where Havelock analyzes the Homeric society and shows you how Plato's real problem is with the unreflective mimetic nature of the psychosocial system and the sophists. of his of his yeah. time. Right? And so yeah, okay. So there's no way Nietzsche wants a regression to that. Right. Um, but what Nietzsche does understand. See, actually, this is the thing that I, the thing that I show in my essay on Plato, is that Plato was already thinking in terms of 
what Nietzsche frames as the dynamic between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. Plato was already thinking of it. And you see it particularly in a dialogue like Symposium. Yeah. Where the Dionysian is extremely evident. Yeah. Right? And in fact, Plato hints in that dialogue uh, through the mouth of Socrates that, and Alcibiades mm -hmm. that because we're all drunk here, this is the place you're going to get the truth. Mm. Right? And Plato comes closest to telling the truth in that dialogue when he has, for example, and I took this as the basis for the, the title of my latest book, Erosophia, but I coined this term in my essay on Plato back in Lovers of Sophia, hmm. where Plato has Socrates tell us in Symposium that the only thing he's ever understood is Eros. Eros. What the fuck? After you write all these dialogues <laughs> with all this complex ontology and epistemology and cosmology, and then you're going to tell us yeah. that this same Socrates, when he's drunk, yeah. admits that the only thing he ever understood was eros. And by the way, not love. Mm -hmm. That's a bad translation. I agree. Because by love, you could mean agape. Mm -hmm. You yeah, could mean... There's four different ways. Philo. You could mean, you know, caritas. You could mean yeah. like agape. In other words, Christ Christly love. Right. Yeah. Compassion, charity, right. etc. However they translate it. A Buddhist might say bodhicitta or something. Whatever. Right. Okay? Beneficent compassion. Yeah. That's not the word he uses. Eros is a desire mm -hmm. love. It, it, look, and he doesn't say philia either. That's interesting. It's magnetic. That's interesting. What, what is Philly? Just so okay, for the so people. Yeah. Friendly. Philosophy mm -hmm. is a contraction, it's a compound of philia and sophia. Philia is brotherly love. Yeah. Friendship. Yeah. Love as friendship. Friendly love. Like yeah. that's where, you know, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, yeah. right? Philly. So he could have said, the only thing that I've ever understood is philia towards sophia, friendship toward wisdom. He doesn't say that. When he's drunk, right. he says, the only thing I understand is erotic desire. Right. The Isn't only that, thing I have ever understood is erotic desire. There's a text from Longus where he says, Eros is the mightiest of all the gods, even more powerful than Zeus. Right. He has the power over all nature. Right. So, okay, so what is Plato admitting there? And again, if people want to, I have a deep argument about this in, in Pharmacon Artist, which, by the way, it's a pun. Pharmacon artist, yeah. the, the con, con artist, artist. pharmacon, yeah. snake poison, etc. Poison that's also a cure, the snake venom that they used to use. So anyway, because that, that comes up, do. that image comes up in Symposium of the snake venom. He's, Alcibiades says Socrates is like a, a, a viper who bit me, and I'm still suffering from the poison. And he's driven me mad. His snake bite has driven me mad. Wow. And this is another thing. There's, one, there's places in Republic... Where Plato's like, mad, good sense is the most important thing in the world, and to think clearly and rationally, and like madness is a horrible thing. And then there's another place in another, I think it's Phaedrus, where he madness. says the madness is the greatest thing in the world yeah. as long as it's, it's a gift divine. of the gods, as it's long as divine. it's divine madness, right? right? So you, there are all these contradictions in Plato. You have to read him very carefully. He's like the most duplicitous writer in human history. He's diabolical in the literal sense of the word diabolos, right? He, he writes against himself like a forked tongue of a serpent. Wow. And so when, when he's admitting in Symposium, the only thing... I think that's a sign thing, of, a, of, a good, of a brilliant person, though, is to be like that. It's, it's a, that's the kind of genius that yeah. is madness, that is genius, that is... And where yeah, the, you there's a line, and then there's no line all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. yeah. you're, you're at the border, and then you cross the border. Yeah. Right. right. Anyway, uh, but here's the point. 
if in Symposium he says, the only thing I've ever understood is Eros, what is he telling us? In a dialogue where the main ads come in and they're playing the flutes and there's literally a Dionysian revel going on while Alcibiades and Socrates and Aristophanes are having this conversation, what is he telling us? He's saying, I'm a Dionysian. Right. My teaching is a Dionysian teaching. These forms, that's and, the Apollonian. And before he did, wrote dialogues, he wrote plays. He was a tragedian for fuck's sake. Right. When he met Socrates, he burned his plays in an offering to Prometheus. Right. Isn't that something? Prometheus, the first tragic oh. figure in Greek mm -hmm. drama. Aeschylus' Prometheus. That's going to be the, the intro of the video. <laughs> Nietzsche says in, um, in The Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche says that Prometheus was the first mask of Dionysus. Mm. And if anyone hasn't realized that that's the case with my Prometheism, well, then they hit the facade. Yeah, because Dionysus They've is, only been is, reading Dionysus me exoterically. The He's the devil. He's the horned, yeah. the horned child of yeah. Amon. Yeah. But, okay, so... so the, he so, gives you madness. So He's, look... He so, inspires... Well, so Prometheus is also the devil. Prometheus becomes Lucifer. That's what and I'm so saying. from a Christian perspective, as I've always argued, Prometheus is also Satan, but Prometheus is a mask of an even deeper, more dynamic and dangerous diabolical force, right. which is the Dionysian. Right. And in Symposium, Plato is saying, hey, I'm a Dionysian, you see? Okay? And the forms are, they're the Apollonian illusion in the birth of tragedy. Nietzsche talks about the Apollonian as like a hallucinatory uh, illusion of clarity, of crystalline perfection. But it's like a visionary hallucination. And the reality is the dark Dionysian abyss. But are both not needed? <clears throat> they're both needed, but they're not, it doesn't mean both are equa primordial, as Heidegger would say, equally primordial. The primordial basis is the Dionysian. The primordial basis is the Heraclitean flux. And then the forms are like, uh, they're like projections that become a support structure for further cultivation, okay? And the mistake is to take anything other than a utilitarian attitude toward them. But you need to make that mistake in order to grow. It's like, when you are teaching a kid how to swim, you're teaching mm -hmm. a small child how to swim, and you're sort of still lightly holding the child, so the child thinks yeah. that you're still holding him, and then eventually you let the child go, but the child hasn't realized yet that he's swimming by himself, but he is, right? It's like that. Mm -hmm. or, or within the realm of art, when you use construction lines and when you first learn anatomy, exactly. you learn how things work in order to then break those rules break the rules, and uh, create something that is wholly original. Well, that's a perfect example, because another extremely curious statement that Plato makes in Republic is that he compares the forms to the templates that geometers use to investigate triangles and circles and so on and so forth, right? Well, he shouldn't be doing that, because forms are supposed to be something that can never be depicted. The perfect circle is not circular. The perfect triangle is not, is not, does not, you know, is, is not something you can draw. Right. Right, with three exists. angles. Yeah. And, no, mm -hmm. it's an abstract idea. So Plato shouldn't be, he should say that the forms drawn by, the, the shapes drawn by geometers 
are a useful tool for understanding the forms. He doesn't say that. He says the forms are like the shapes drawn by geometers for the sake of understanding something that cannot even be formalized at all, which right. he calls the form of the good. The good, right. Or, in Phaedrus, he calls it the form of the beautiful, mm -hmm. and he equates the two. And one very important thing to understand to get people out of this conditioning they've had, uh, Christian conditioning, where, you know, they've come to believe that Christianity is Platonism for the masses, and that by form of the good, Plato somehow meant like goodness in a Christian sense, right? Or like the beneficence of God or some, something does like he that. Call, does he use the word agathos for good? Exactly. Agathos. And so, and then, and then uh, a kalon for the beautiful. And so when you look at what these terms really mean, it's not the form of the good like moral goodness. It's that for the sake of which. Yeah. That for the sake of which. What, so like we say, you know, what something's good for, yeah. The good, the form of the good is what everything else is good for. Utilitarian. Not no? it it's that for the sake of which everything else is. Everything mm. else is like a means. Yeah. To this end. This is the telos. Yeah. And this telos is also described as the beautiful. And Socrates says the only thing I understand is erotic desire. So what Socrates is saying is Socrates, he's a mouthpiece. <laughs> he's a puppet. <laughs> The, what Plato's saying. Plato, yeah. Socrates. Yeah. What Plato is saying is that what I'm really trying to get you to do, what I'm try really trying to get you to do is to have an erotic desire toward the Dionysian and to be seduced by Dionysus and to be driven mad. But first you're going to need to learn how to think. Yes. Right. That's what he's doing. Now, the Neoplatonists go go far with this because they say that Apollo and Dionysus are the same god. Have you read Macrobius' Saturnalia? No, but I know what you're, what you're getting he, at. What he says is the Athenians marked their calendars. Half the year was for Dionysus was on top. Half the year Apollo was on top. And uh, he, he's like citing Orpheus and he's citing all these different people saying... Oh, Liberpater, which is Dionysus, and Apollo are both the sun. They're both born at the winter solstice. <clears throat> and then he's like, this is pretty, like, hardly anyone talks about this text, but they're, this guy's arguing that th this dual nature, this son of God character is chthonic, dark Dionysus, yeah. but also heavenly, orderly right. Apollo. Well, there's a, third, there's a third term in, that tr in a trinity where Apollo and Dionysus are resolved, and that's Artemis, because yeah. Artemis is the sister of Apollo. Uh, Diana Lucifera. Exactly. Dionysus is the best friend of Artemis. Mm -hmm. And so Artemis becomes this figure who reconciles the Dionysian and the Apollonian. And which temple did Heraclitus uh, take refuge in at the end of his life? Did this. The yeah. temple of Artemis. And But no, who is Artemis? The Huntress. Yeah. She also becomes Diana Selena in, in, in the later... She's Lucifer. It, but listen to this. So the Mithraic iconography of Mithra slaying the bull. Yeah. We found them all. We found Taoists' bull. They always have Apollo, this, Apollo Soul mm -hmm. and Diana Lu Selena and their chariots on top. Yeah, and Artemis becomes Diana Lucifera. 
for yes. the Romans, right? Dionysius of Pharaoh, who Paul is preaching against in Ephesus, right? When they throw vegetables at it. By the way, another thing Franz Kumat pointed out, the, 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 on the neck of one of the iconographies, I don't know if it's just one or if there's a few of them that do this, on the neck it says, Namas Sabazio. So like, in, in give thanks to Sabazius. <laughs> so the, 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 Dionysus' death and his consumption by the Titans is like this. It's almost like a Christian Eucharist offering. It's a salvation. Uh, it's a sacrifice. Well, the Christian Christian uh, symbolism and rites are uh, drawing from and appropriating. Right, that's what I'm saying. And I would say misappropriate. Of course. This old discourse. Right, that's what I'm saying. And there's another example right there with the Sabasius thing. Right. So now, okay, to go back to Nietzsche for a minute, yeah. right? Um, uh, we have, yeah, we have Nietzsche over here. It's right. Rudder friendly up here. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. Nice. So to go back to Nietzsche, what Nietzsche was saying is uh, no, I this is this is just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't do this to you. <laughs> let's just let's just put you right back there. <laughs> That's all kinds of wrong. All right. Um what Nietzsche is saying is that. Christianity led to a deepening and uh, um, sophistication of the European soul. That the the European soul gained a complexity and sophistication through being subjected to the disease that is Christianity. Right? Like sometimes, like um, you know, your immune system can be strengthened mm -hmm. by successfully fighting a certain disease. You develop an immunity. To that disease or any number of other diseases that are similar to it, right? Is it similar to how you were talking about the philosophers during the golden age of Islam? How it was Islam that took them out of the orthodox Zoroastrianism that was active before that time? Exactly. Except that a lot of people who haven't are familiar with that argument from Iranian Leviathan or other conversations we had are going to wonder, like, what the hell are you even talking about? Mm. But, but, but yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so Christianity. It's like, you know, the people who in, um, in, in Asia were uh, uh, exposed to the um, avian flu mm. had a much higher resistance to COVID-19. This has been shown. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. The people who, you know, uh, their immune system successfully grappled with the avian flu, they did a lot better being exposed to COVID-19. Okay. So what each is saying about Christianity is that, yeah, it's, it's a disease. But it built up an immune response that made European man after Christianity stronger than we were before it in the pagan era. And so if something else like Christianity comes along, um, even if it's not exactly the same thing, we will have built up an immune response to it. Mm. And he thinks that this is a process that it was necessary for us to go through. It, Nietzsche is not a neo-pagan who's advocating a return to pre-Christian paganism. What Nietzsche is advocating is a dialectical reversal of Christianity and a surmounting of it in, in, you know, a kind of Promethean uh, ethos that from a Christian perspective is satanic. I mean, he quite literally, he called, you know, he calls his book Antichrist that for a reason, the Antichrist. He see, Nietzsche sees himself as sort of a John the Baptist figure um, in relation to a coming Antichrist preparing the way 
for the arrival of, as he puts it, the second coming of Zarathustra, who is going to be the 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 father, uh, the the progenitor of a race of supermen, right? Who are post-Christian. And I think that ultimately this is what Plato was also after. That Plato wanted to transform people in the society of his time into individuals capable of understanding Heraclitus the way that he did. But he knew that that route had to pass through a an artificial but constructive mm. belief system, right? That would uh, deepen their souls and sharpen their minds. Sharpen their minds, not necessarily because the system is, uh, I mean, is, uh, okay, so one's mind can also be sharpened by resisting something and by finding problems with it. Yeah. Right? You see, I mean, and that's how an immune response works also. Right. Okay, so, you know, I think that that, really that essential point. project of, of Plato's is a forerunner of what Nietzsche is doing later. Yeah. About how Nietzsche understands the role of Christianity in history later on. And... In those terms, uh, Nietzsche's critiques of Plato are especially unfair because actually the figure in the history of philosophy that's closest to his own thinking is Plato. It still seems that there have been more, let's say, uh, Jews who have been accused of being these questioning bunch of people, while at least today a lot of Christians seem to be very much happy with whatever trajectory they happen to be on, whether it's being trad, as they say, or whether it's being woke. Right. So I think what that attests to is uh, the overly optimistic attitude of Plato. That Plato was naively optimistic and idealistic in his assumption that this process that he set in motion, which eventually, I mean, it, it spawns rationalism, but it also eventually morphs into Christianity. Right. And then the dialectic between rationalism and Christianity. It comes out of Middle Platonism. Yeah. yeah. And then the dialectic between dy- a dynamic opposition of Christ- uh, rationalism and Christianity, from out of which we eventually get Nietzsche. Yeah. And like, I don't know what you want to call it, existential process philosophy or whatever. Right. And Plato and people like him, other people like him, were overly optimistic in thinking that this process, because see the Plato and see, I, and people are going to ask you, how are you going to prove this and whatever, but okay. Yeah. I have reason to believe that Plato was part of a, a hidden elite. Why? Well, that's good. Well, that's not a crazy thing to say. Yeah. Um, I, he, he was, look, Pythagoras certainly. Look at was. Aristotle, his student. Look what he did. Yeah. Look and, and look, we, yeah. we know Pythagoras. This is well, not a conspiracy theory. We know yeah, Py- Pythagoras is the original Illuminatus yeah. in our recorded history. Yeah. And Plato was a member of the Pythagorean order, yeah. who then went on to study Heraclitus deeply and so on and so forth. So, I, and he was a member of the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do. For certain reasons, I know that Plato was a member of an elite. So it wasn't just him. There were people who had a certain vision for how society could be transformed constructively and this through the creation of false systems of belief, both epistemology, yeah. like the theory of forms, 
and also religious belief systems that were meant to act on social psychology the way that an inoculant acts to introduce a certain amount of a disease into you so that then you can build up your immune response in the event that you're exposed to the real thing, right? Except that they overestimated humanity. And it turns out, as Nietzsche understands, that the vast majority of people are really, actually, they're not even as good as robots. Mm-hmm. What Nietzsche says is that we're headed for a bifurcation of the human species, where the vast majority of people who are a herd of cattle, flock of sheep, are going to be replaced by a race of robots, by a gigantic machinery of production, he calls it. So-called so, humans, sort of right. people are going to degenerate into a subhuman state that he calls the last man. Uh, I can't call them individuals. I was going to say individuals, but the point is that they're not individuals. NBCs. People who are constantly uh, distracting themselves with various forms of entertainment and they're diverting themselves into, you know, every form of meaningless, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, every form of meaningless captivation. And they're, they're, yeah. they're incapable of uh, adhering to any principles or developing any vision for, you know, what they want their future to be or what the future of society should be, right? They have no commitment, no discipline whatsoever, and they're entirely dependent on creature comforts, right? And he thinks that this type of person, this, you know, gutless, unprincipled, utterly hypocritical uh, creature lacking a backbone that is the last man ought to be transformed into a gigantic machinery of production to serve the purposes of the overman. So there's going to be this bifurcation. We're going to face an evolutionary selection pressure. He he lays this out most clearly in The Will to Power. But it's there in various forms and other writings of his as well. And so this selection pressure which he sees already. He sees the world wars coming. He sees the development of more advanced weaponry. He sees all these things. He sees the geopolitical and technological pressures of the 20th century. He saw socialism coming too. Yes, and and those parts of his writings are very prophetic. And he sees this as a selection pressure that's going to bifurcate humanity. And one very small group of highly individuated and motivated visionaries are going to mutate into the overman. And the vast majority of people are better off being reduced to a race of robots because they're already dysfunctional robots anyway. Right. Artificial intelligence would also play a role in this. Absolutely, because artificial intelligence could be like this organizing uh, mechanism for that entire machinery of production, right? And but the important thing is now Nietzsche is not an advocate of the Borg. He's saying that the machinery of production needs to serve an elite who are, as he puts it, artist philosophers and statesmen. It's like the combination of the artist, the philosopher, and the statesman is how he sees these people. They're consummate geniuses who are creative spirits, and they have the the intrepid character of the great explorers, Mm -hmm. and they have the the wherewithal and the, the capacity for decisiveness of great sovereigns. They have good logistics skills. Well, way beyond that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's, so it's almost like the AI ends up being the extensions of this minority of uh, individuals. 
it's subsumed to their capacity to decide on the goals they want to pursue and their visions for what the future should be. So Nietzsche does not agree with these transhumanists who think that we should subjugate ourselves to some artificial superhuman intelligence that's going to organize our lives for us. He would not be an advocate. Mm -hmm. And is this something that uh, similar to what you were talking about in Black Sunrise having to do with the radical departure? Well, you said it in German really well. Yeah. Abbauende Ausbruch ins Weltanschauungskrieg. Abbauende means uh, dismantling or deconstructive. Aufbruch means breakthrough or breakout or breakaway. And ins Weltanschauungskrieg, in worldview warfare. Destructive departure in worldview warfare. And I have uh, this essay in Lovers of Sophia where I first introduced that concept, but then I developed it throughout my writings. It's in Prometheism. It's actually fairly extensively presented in Prometheism. And then it comes back in, in other subsequent works also, like in Psychotron and uh, my book on UFOs, Closer Encounters. That idea of destructive departure is very central to closing closer encounters. And it's the idea of a breakaway civilization that effectively these Ubermenschen are a breakaway civilization. But Nietzsche's vision for it is merciless. It's yeah. horrible because he's not even talking about some small group of people breaking away from a human society that's going to be left to itself to evolve or devolve Whatever. how it sees fit. No, the rest of so-called society is going to be organized into a machinery of production that serves for the cosmic conquest of the Ubermenschen. Which, by the way, we had there was this Russian thinker, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who was the rocket scientist that fathered the Soviet space program. And he also had this idea. Well, I think he probably read Nietzsche, was oh. influenced in part by Nietzsche. Oh. And he was a eugenicist. And he was the only one of the Russian cosmists who was sort of canonized by the Soviet Union because he was such a Promethean. You know, Russian cosmism in, 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 um, what's his name? Um, Nikolai, um, uh, what's his name? Fedorov. Oh, yeah. Uh, Fyodorov. Fyodorov. Yeah. And Nikolai Fyodorov. He was coming up from out of Russian Orthodoxy, but he had very heretical and futuristic ideas that uh, led to his development of this new, I, I guess you could call it, what would you call it? It's like a theosophy, let's say. It's, I wouldn't call it philosophy. It's not quite religion. It's a theosophy, theosophy yeah. of cosmism, right? But it was coming from out of Russian Orthodoxy. And then you got this guy, uh, Tsiolkovsky, who trashed all the Christian stuff from uh, Fyodorov. And he takes a much more Promethean position in forwarding this cosmism. And Tsiolkovsky is all into psychic powers. and Did Rasputin? Wasn't Rasputin like that too? He was not a futurist. No. Okay. He, was, he was just an occultist. Oh, okay. Very funny. Tsiolkovsky uh, understands all the latent psychic capacities of humanity. And so in a way, Tsiolkovsky is also a progenitor of the Soviet psychotronics program. As well as being a rocket scientist who laid the groundwork for the Soviet space program. And he had the same vision as Nietzsche that we have to leave these retarded people behind 
not only do we have to leave them behind, we have to make sure that they serve the purpose of our conquest of the cosmos and of our seeding the stars with a superior form of humanity. It's rearranging society like ants, where you have a queen bee. Well, no, the point is this. Or a bee, like, bees, not ants, the, bees. The point is this. Have, and Nietzsche is looking at the majority of, of you know, humanity. Yeah. Like sometimes he describes them as sand grains. He's like, there are all these little balls, like all like the one like the other, and they like to rub up against each other, you know. Right. And he's like, what, what do they want to make of themselves, these people? Do they even think? Like, are they even people? Yeah. It's, it's essentially, he is foreseeing what we now conceive of as the idea of the NPC, non-player. Well, he, there's a quote from him in, um, I think it's from that, that spoke, uh, Zarathustra, where he says, like, what are you doing to get from, to get past that tightrope? Like, are you contributing to that? Or are you yes. just sitting by letting everyone else exactly. work for you? It is interesting, though, that there is this idea that's more popular, let's say, around the right-wing circles of the uh, globalists who see humanity as pretty much what you were talking about, but want to create the kind of world where they get to rule over all these people and life, both for the, those people as well as people who would be actually brilliant individuals, would be reduced to just like this uh Soviet commie block type favela life, which is a pretty horrible idea. Well, first of all, that's not what Nietzsche is saying. No, not Nietzsche. I'm saying that's what the globalists have in mind, according to the ideas of uh, people who are more on the right wing. Yeah, Nietzsche would totally reject that. He would say, like, why would you want socialism preserving the lives of these people? Right, no, yeah. They should just be made robots. Creatures of equality. Replaced by robots. Mm. Well, what are creatures of equality? Yeah, yeah. Also. but but yeah. what do you think it is uh, going on with all of these Davos uh, Great Reset type people as far as what their well I, views are humanity? Yeah, I, I've said this. Up. I've said this many times, and I'll repeat it again. I've written about it at length. You know, beginning in my book Prometheism, actually, in the same section as I discussed destructive departure. The yeah, such is that I think that uh, you know. Um, I don't want to call them conspiracy theorists because that 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 brand has often been applied to me, you know. Yeah. And I mean, our whole world is built on conspiracies, and if you don't see that, you're a fucking moron. Yeah. All right. But in, in in any case, um, these people on the right who have these notions about the globalists and how they have a plan to organize the whole world, whatever. Well, yeah, but their plan appears to be to create a neo feudal system where large parts of the world are de-industrialized, they may be subjected to a socialist economy and a redistribution of resources. But if we actually had the technological singularity take place in an unconstrained manner, why would you need socialism? We would have an economy of abundance, where, like in Star Trek, where no one would want for anything. I mean, we could just print anything out of a fucking replicator, right? So clearly, these advocates of global socialism and who are using the discourse of climate change to push deindustrialization really want feudalism to come back, where they then become a new feudal class, a new class of lords, yeah. managing a largely deindustrialized, demoralized population that has its basic needs taken care of through socialism. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, why would anyone want that? And my answer is because they're not the ones coming up with that plan. There are people on another level. Yeah. There are orchestrators on another level. 
who used to run this world. The Hindus called them the Devas. Yeah. The Greeks called them the Olympians. And they would like to take control back. Right? Yeah, and, 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 this is, and this is what we have in the Bible. Right? After the judgment, we will have the kingdom of God. The angels will come back with Jesus, and they will take control of the don't situation. Forget, don't forget what it says. People don't read it because they don't live a Greek. They just, death and Hades are thrown in the fire. Huh? No, no. Thanatos and Hades. Those are two Orphic deities. Those are two Chthonic. What I'm getting at is there, there's a statement being said about the kingdom of God replacing. Yeah. It's very Plato-ish. It's, it's replacing the Homeric Thanatos and Hades. You're cast away. Now it's the king of Jerusalem, the kingdom of yeah. So what yeah. what I'm saying is, yeah, that's what they're that's, that's what they're. But uh, but this does bring us back to the subject of uh, philosophy versus religion. How much influence would these, let's say, uh, quote unquote, higher beings have on the development of things like Christianity, like Islam, like Judaism, as well as like uh, what is called the advent of the Dante Hinduism? versus certain, let's say, more organic things happening within local communities that get spread out like uh, memetics. I think it's all incredibly complex. Okay. Yeah. I think it's incredibly complex. I think that if you if you take it all seriously, as I do, the struggle between the gods and the titans or the angels and the demons, right? I mean, the, the angels are the gods. Yeah. The demons are the titans. It's it's just a yeah. coding of the thing. Yeah. And, you know, the the... The titans that are punished by being bound in Tartarus, that's Satan and his fallen angels in hell. It's it's all yeah, maps on very it, well. Okay. Exactly. So if you take this conflict seriously, then first of all, you have to understand that in the shaping of human religions, there have been two sides in conflict with each other. And so one side might introduce something into a certain population. Another side might try to spin it or to destroy it, but maybe sometimes not destroy it, maybe sometimes spin it. Yeah. Okay, so move, counter move. And it's not chess, it's more like backhand because there's an element of chance in the game. Yeah. Okay? The, you have the black and the white pieces, but there's also the throw of chance. That's what it's like in the conflict between these two forces throughout the course of history. But the bottom line is this, to come back to the main subject of our discussion. From at least Plato onward in our recorded history, and remember, Plato is also the one who brings us the myth of Atlantis. So when we want to talk about the Atlantean rebellion against the Olympians, Plato's giving us that story. Yeah, right. Right. So if we want to go back at least to Plato in our recorded history, there has been a struggle quite apart from gods and titans and what ontological status they may have. Right. There's been a struggle in the human community of philosophy against religion and a struggle by a certain group of thinkers who have tried to establish a position of dominance for philosophy, where it's philosophy that's fundamentally determinative of human society rather than religion. And this brings us, remember, I started the, this, this uh, conversation with Leo Strauss, right? And yeah. Leo Strauss, and he was the most important political theorist we had probably in the 20th century in America, in America. And the elites saw him that way, you know, and a lot of very influential students of the University of Chicago and Strauss was very preoccupied with the foundations of the U.S. Constitution and what to do with this republic that's based on this constitution framed the way that it is, particularly when it comes to the question of reason versus revelation, right? So our freedom of religion is kind of a disaster. 
yeah. in the Constitution. And then it's reflected in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights also. Yeah. And the problem is that if you give people an unqualified freedom of religion, they can on faith believe in a religion that's against all the other rights in the Bill of Rights mm -hmm. or all the other articles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's like Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance. Yes. Yeah, that's such a good so, point. So the issue is this. that But it, this is how the death of God comes about, right? Well, Nietzsche's central message. God is dead and we have killed him. Right. We're the greatest murderers in all of history. Yeah. How are we going to wash this blood off of our hands? How are we going to become worthy of the deed other than through Dionysian rites and rituals where we become gods unto ourselves? That's what Nietzsche is saying, right? Really leave us the right to wipe away the whole horizon, he says. Yeah. And how are we going to live up to having done that? It's crazy. But, it's very, but to become gods ourselves, to transcend mere humanity. Very big shoes to fill. It's, pro it's profound what he said. But Young responded to that in his Red Book. I don't know if you've ever read this, where he says, no, 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 God is not dead. In fact, he's alive. He, he is um, indefinite reality of... Uh, he is the, what does he say? He, he is the Pleroma. All that exists. And his name is Abraxas. Yeah. Well, I think that Jung was uh, at least a closet Gnostic. Yeah. <laughs> his name was Abraxas. That's the name and of the guy. I, I voiced, no, but in that same book, yeah. he says that the devil and Jesus are fighting and they, there's a tie. There, Jesus does not win. Mm. And then they end up just frozen in time. That's wait, Neil. So he's what? not he's not like a pro Christian. No, no look, he, look, he's deeply conflicted. Yeah, he's deeply he's like, conflicted. He's like me. He's like Carl me. Jung wasn't he? Look, he was a Gnostic. Yeah. Okay. And there's all kinds of flavors of and variants of Gnosticism. I I I respect his flavor of Gnosticism. I think I have I have a lot of respect for a lot of Gnostics. And you know, in Erosophia, what I talk about toward the end of the book is how I would not like to see a world where there's only one belief system. Where right. everyone, you know, uh, you know, adheres to a single ideology, Prometheism, any ideology, yeah. right? So I don't want to see that kind of a unipolar world. I want to see a world where there continues to be conflict and competition, and uh, consequently, where new visions are possible because there's no closed hermeneutic horizon. That having been said, we don't need the retardation of Islam. Or of all of the established forms of Christianity. Jung, Jungian Gnosticism, I have no problem. If people want to open like a Carpocratian cult or something. Right. right? Or someone's a Vajrayana this, Buddhist. This or, is what I want to end on. I wanted to ask you, yeah. what do you, what, how, how do we go about religion in a, and like if Plato was here today and he saw what happened in the last 2000 years of his project, yeah. how would he restructure this? Well, he would say philosophers have to restructure the world. So that only constructive religions remain. Now, construct doesn't mean they're true. Oh, they're not yes. true religions. Yes. So he might say, oh, he might think to himself, well, Jung is doing it. He's, he's still got these naive Gnostic yeah. longings, yeah. right? That he, uh, he project. Talk about projection. Jung himself is a victim of projection. He's projecting this whole pleroma and all this business because, you know, the rea reality. He said that dreams come from somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. He, look, he was a Gnostic. Okay. Yeah. He's a, he's a modern Gnostic. Yeah. And I voiced my criticism. You want to see my criticism of Gnosticism in particular? Look at chapter six of Closer Encounters. Yeah, yeah. Where I really hand it to Gnosticism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, chapter six of Closer Encounters. Uh, Miguel showed me that. Yeah. Yes. 
So he did, did he? Yeah. That's very interesting. Okay. So yeah, Miguel, I love Miguel. Me too. But he has a great talk. Yeah. Miguel's an example of a great Gnostic in our time. Yeah. And so I would have no problem to see, you know, large swath of the world be Gnostic, uh, another swath be Vajrayana Buddhist and, you know, Taoists. Oh, I mean, the best thing that could happen to us would be for Taoism to take over China. Oh, yeah. But you see, here, here's the thing. It will never happen. Because if you look at the history of China, you see how the Chinese have an extremely collectivistic, authoritarian, right. paternalistic, hierarchical attitude, which Confucianism epitomizes and which utterly stamped out what it could of Taoism and every other more dynamic form of thinking that arose in Chinese history. Yeah. I mean, they mass executed, you know, sages in that country. Right. Okay. So, so this is never going to happen in China. So what is, let me, let me answer your question. No, you're good. You're good. What would Plato do? What would Jesus do? That would matter. What would Plato do? Well, I think that despite Nietzsche's very unfair criticisms of him, Plato and Nietzsche would very much see eye to eye at this point in history. We at this point I in agree. history. And they would come to the conclusion that the philosopher or the ubermensch, same thing, needs to take over. Right. Now, not not to impose a totalitarian collectivistic system right. or singular ideology. Not, not, not a Catholic church. Not a Catholic yeah. church. But to have more constructive religions, belief systems, you know, flourish. And to give people an atmosphere where they can continue to cultivate their ethos and individuate themselves. Right? That's what I think that now. When, at what cost? At what cost? Because, and here's the... The other aspect of my work that's that's particularly dangerous is that I very clearly point to the fact that we are out of time. We literally have 20 years. The technological singul singularity is already taking place with the rise of artificial intelligence. 20 to 30 years from now, we will be in the vortex of the te technological singularity. All right, biotechnology, yeah, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, and all of the side. Mm -hmm. abilities and paranormal phenomena that will be recognized by mainstream science as a result of research in these uh, in these tangible areas are going to confront us with the challenge of mutation and adaptation or mass extinction. And the only way that you can roll that back is to deindustrialize us to to demolish advanced industrial civilization and put again hundreds of years between us and the technological singularity. And this is going back to my answer to you when you asked about the globalists. Yes. I think that's the ultimate agenda that Elon Musk and all these people who claim to be for technology. I mean, Elon Musk, e Elon Musk is ridiculous. I'm glad the you, notion glad you that, that we're going to go to Mars I in agree. rockets when Lockheed has had anti-gravity saucers since 1955 is a joke. Yeah. I mean, Elon Musk is like, he's like a little Christmas ornament. And, and, he's, show, he's, and he's shown that he's the, no interest in any of this uh, allegedly secret technology. UFOs are not real. Psychic phenomena are not real. By the way, he's in for a rude awakening when he tries to like perfect Neuralink. And he sees that psychokinesis is constantly interfering with the Neuralink connection. It will happen. It won't work. The thing won't work because we're constantly engaged in psychokinesis unconsciously. Yes. And they found this when like uh, airline, the fighter, jet fighter pilots 
would freak out in their cockpits during training exercises or in combat, and they would see that the electronic systems inside the cockpit would malfunction. And eventually they troubleshooted, they troubleshooted at these defense contractors that built these aircraft. They were, what the fuck is going on? Shit, this, this stuff about telekinesis is real. And therefore they build multiple redundancy systems inside cockpits. They don't tell anybody why they do it. That's why they do it. It's a trade secret in aerospace. So Musk either, what is he, a moron? He doesn't know these things? What? No, he's, he's a tool. He's a yeah. tool. Jeff Bezos, it's all, they're well, all tools. Well, he was born into a billionaire family. He didn't yeah. just, it's like, yeah. and if you dig into his family in South Africa yeah. and the connections to Werner von Braun and all that, Crazy. it gets real. Well, his, gra- his grandfather, by the way, in Canada was, uh, the, uh, I believe the, uh, politician for the, uh, transhumanist organization there. Like he ran on the transhumanist platform back in the day. So there are all these very interesting connections. Like we were talking with uh, Drew Tang earlier. You yeah. remember, right, Neil? And Drew was talking about how Werner von Braun wrote this book about Mars colonization. And the leader of that Martian colony was called Elon. Not a name, but a title, Elon. Yeah. There's a photograph that appears to show Elon Musk's mother with Werner von Braun. That's been debated, whether that whether that's who that is, but... I believe, I believe it's true that Elon Musk's South African supposed father was a business partner of Werner von Braun. Yeah. So it would make sense that she was in a photograph with him. Anyway, there's a whole kind of, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I do. My point is this. My point is this, right? Let's not go into conspiracy theory. (laughs) My point is this, that, uh, the alternative, the only alternative to facing this selection pressure head on, is to roll back the singularity and deliberately deindustrialize society. That's and a, I, that's a crazy I categorically and unequivocally oppose that. I am not interested in another library of Alexandria moment. I am not interested in another reset. Though what this means is we're going to have the HP Lovecraft type scenarios that people are going to be seeing in real time. Should a lot of the psychic phenomena, for example, manifest itself, it's going to be rough. Now, I want to, before we close this out, I want to ask you about, and I like, you know, in the ancients, they had the Pythagorean order, and, you know, there was it being initiated, and there was this religious philosophical fusion happening that you don't really see today. Now it's dogma, now it's Judeo Christianity, Islam. So it's, you know, those types of. I don't know if Freemasonry has this thing. It kind of looks like modern day Mithraeus with initiations. You pick your own God and all this. Is there a. You know, they invited me into that bullshit. Yeah. I, yeah. No, someone asked I me. You would never joined. Yeah. Someone, someone, someone asked me if I wanted to. Basically, just devolve into a club. It used to be like a real powerful organization. Anyways, what I'm saying. Go ahead. Is, I'm going to come back to that. There's something yeah. where I want to say, but go ahead. Yeah. What, what I'm saying is, it, can there be something like a state? level uh governing branch that's like keeping the keeping religion religions in some sort of like purpose because i feel like nietzsche nietzsche's making a point about the death of god like yeah but neil how are you gonna do it i don't know that's why i'm asking what do we do is it in america in america suppose is is, is religion dead is it over? How then? How are you gonna? What are you, are you gonna control these masses of evangelicals and the Sunni Muslims? And I get you can't. You can't. You can't. So we are look and 
Look, Chris. <laughs> he he saw this. Okay. He saw it happen. He saw it. Okay. And he did read too, read Eche Homo. Yeah. Nietzsche says a conflict is coming, which is unlike any war humanity has ever faced in history. I think it's coming soon. It is a war, it's going to be a war for the earth and for the to decide the nature and future of man. Yeah. Okay. You can, and you, we all, everyone here can feel what, what's, you can see it. Yes. And, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but the reality is it means the mass extinction of the majority of the human race. This yeah. is what Nietzsche was foreseeing. But this is why the Bhagavad Gita was quoted by Oppenheimer. Yeah. Because yeah. Have, you, have you read the Bhagavad Gita? <laughs> I have. Three or four different translations. Well, it, was, it was a rhetorical question. It's like for, <laughs> including one with the Sanskrit on the right. other side. Yeah. And the point is that war has to happen mm-hmm. for the for the for the progress yes. of reality. Yes. There's gonna be an Uncle Bishma yes. who's gonna have to die by, yes. by by the bow Arjun. Yes. And it's gonna have to happen. Yes. It's just the inaction is not a possibility. Action is the only way. By the way, by the way, uh Side note, but significant esoteric yeah. key. Remember, we were talking for the patrons earlier. We did a patron stream and yeah. Kubrick came up and could, how I had wanted to write a book about the films of Kubrick and all right. that. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, Eyes Wide Shut was censored. And I'm not talking about when they put hooded figures in front of the sex scenes. That was done for the R-rated version. That's not what I'm talking about. That movie was released, and two weeks later, every print of it was recalled from theaters. Didn't Kubrick die right after that? No, he died before it. Kubrick died after he screened it for the first time privately for the actors and a few other people, and then he had a heart attack. Okay, so he and he he would have been rolling over in his grave if he knew what what I'm about to say, what happened, right? So they released this film, and two weeks later, I remember this distinctly, they recalled every reel from the cinemas and replaced it with a new reel, which had the soundtrack changed over the orgy scenes. So when Tom Cruise goes into the mansion of the Illuminati... Can you get the originals anymore? Or they go? You don't know what I tried to do, okay? Can day? Yeah. Anyway, and I was going to write that book about Kubrick. All right. It's impossible. They're gone. It's impossible. This is so crazy. I had to My reconstruct so it. Wrong. I had to reconstruct it by getting the original soundtrack by Jocelyn Pook and taking the track and layering it on top of What's the, the scene. It's the Bhagavad Gita Parabon oh scene. It's the Bhagavad and the meaning of Eyes Wide Shut is in that scene with those lyrics, and they destroyed it. I didn't even know. Because that. when we Pook, just Cruz walks so in, Cruz walks in, as the orgy scenes begin to unfold. The dance of Shiva. Well, no, it's, uh, you know, um, to protect the righteous, to destroy the wicked, I come from age to age. And so it's these key lines from the battle scene of the Bhagavad Gita. And it's Kubrick, and it repeats and repeats and repeats in Sanskrit. And it's Kubrick talking about these people who think they're running the world. 
and the battle that's coming and what's going to happen to these people. Yeah, they're just... And, ah, for fuck's sake. And this is the same man who made Lolita. And if you look at who Claire Quilty is supposed to be in that film, you think there's not a connection between him and the people in that mansion. And Kubrick was saying something very profound by quoting the Bhagavad Gita there. Mm -hmm. The same Stanley Kubrick who made Clockwork Orange, which is like one of the most Nietzschean films. movie messed up my wife. That is one of the most Nietzschean films that, you know, you could imagine. Right. Uh, and then this is why Kubrick never explained himself because he, I mean, you want to talk about being canceled. If Stanley Kubrick ever had explained himself and what his movies mean, he'd, he, he'd have never made another film in his life. Yeah. As it is, Hollywood hated him. Yeah. No, if he, uh, if he wasn't around for Twitter, he'd be done. Yeah. Wait, wait who was Claire Quilty supposed to be? A sex trafficker on behalf of the elites. Yeah. So Claire, Claire Quilty was Jeffrey Epstein, basically. Yeah. Super proto Epstein. This is wild, and th- but this is what. How many articles are we going to see about another Catholic church priest doing something? I mean, it's like at some point you got to just say, like, "What's the, what, why does this keep happening?" Yeah, wow. enough. It's enough There's already. Something going it's on. enough already. Yeah. And the thing is, we this is no longer a hypothetical question. That's the point I make throughout my entire corpus. Especially when I'm talking about technology. This is no longer a hypothetical question. We're not sitting here like, even like Plato or like, you know, I don't know, Francis Bacon writing The New Atlantis or Thomas More's Utopia or something and imagining what would be a more ideal society. No, we are 20 years at most from a technological we're, singularity. We're preventing society. We're not trying to build it. We're preventing, we're thinking, we're, we're throwing the opposite of what they're doing. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and so look, I, there's no solution. But the burning of the Library of Alexandria or the radical mutation and evolution of humanity. And as I keep saying to belabor the point, evolution is an exclusionary mechanism. When evolution happens, a mutation is selected for, like those dinosaurs that had wings, right? There are a few, di- I'm not talking about pterodactyls, yeah. the ones who had feathers. Yeah. Right, right, right. They became birds. They flew up over the ash and lava that was suffocating the other dinosaurs to death. And they evolved into the birds that we see today. The other dinosaurs, you don't see them around anymore. Right? That's evolution. Evolution's a bitch. There's a selection pressure. It selects a mutation in a very small subset of a population, an adaptive mutation, and the rest go extinct. Except today, the selection pressure is the technological singularity. The unfolding of reality. What we're talking about. Harry Clyden unfolding of reality. I think this is a good place to end it. Yeah, right. this was the Bhagavad Gita thing at the end. It really blew my mind. Well, yeah, I got to look at I just want to say final things. Uh, guys, thank you so much for watching. This was quite an amazing experience. We're going to be doing a lot more of these. And this was right before we had a Patreon exclusive Q&A with uh, Neil and Dr. Giorgiani. And we're going to be doing a lot more of those to come in this New York City studio of Break the Rules. So be sure to become a patron, patreon.com slash break the rules. Of course, subscribe, like the video, share it with everybody that you know. And uh, where can we find uh, Neil, Gnostic Informant, and uh, what do you got coming up? Uh, Gnostic Informant is my channel. You can just look it up on YouTube. There's two channels. One of them has uh, clips, but also... Put together like multiple interviews into one long video, just like re-upload and stuff like that. Anyways, my current project right now is the um, 
I'm actually working on the work uh, of work that's about the Dionysian. The Dionysian uh, is the most influential aspect of ancient religion. And it, go, it goes back to the ancient Black Sea region, Sibasius. When I, I, I talk about the connection with Shiva, uh, I got, I've been reading Megasthenes Indica and the Indian Dionysus and all that stuff. Um, but the idea of Theosabase, which means like God inspired, mm-hmm. which is what Paul uses when he talks about God fearing people. It means God fearing. It has that root, Sabase, in it. It's like inspired by God, mad divine madness. So having the Holy Spirit, all that, all this stuff comes from what we would call the Dionysian. So I'm working on a video about that. Nice. It's coming out. And uh, Dr. Giorgiani, I know you have the new book out, Era Sophia. Uh, please uh, tell us a little bit about that and what else you uh, are working on. I'm personally very interested in this project of yours. I'm so, I'm so looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, my latest book is Era Sophia. Uh, and, you know, you can find, I think, links to all my videos on social media on my website, which is jasonrezagiorgiani.com. You can link it in the show notes. Um, so yeah, jasonrezagiorgiani.com is a nexus to link to my uh, Twitter, uh, YouTube, and so on and so forth. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is the Prometheism YouTube. Excellent. And with that, we bid you farewell. Next time, BTR NYC is happening. It's here. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>